Today's episode of the Film Stage Show is brought to you by Mubi, the online streaming cinema. For your free 30-day trial, go to mubi.com slash filmstage. Gentlemen, to a brand new episode of the Film Stage Show, the movie review podcast for thefilmstage.com. As always, I'm your host, Brian J. Rowan. With me today, we have Michael Snydell. Hello. We also have Bill Graham. Vote yes. <laughs> and a special guest today to talk about the documentary American Factory, streaming on Netflix now. It's Joshua Ensinias. Did I get that what? anywhere close to right? Uh, it's Joshua and Sinius, so mostly right. 90%. That's pretty do you want to cool. redo that beginning part, Brian? No. <laughs> I'm coming shame. <laughs> also, even now having heard it, I still don't believe that I will land it. So. <laughs> oh. It's okay. Um, I've been called um, Joshua Insidious before, so that's much worse. That's a, yeah, I I feel better than that I didn't call you insidious. Yeah. As though you were it. some kind of WWE wrestler. <laughs> or like a Star Wars villain, right? Or yes. Yes, a Seth Lewis. Yeah. Encinas, yeah. California. I'm sure you must have gotten that at some point as well. Uh yeah, a bit. Quite a bit. And and potentially Josh uh Encino Man? No? Uh no, but but uh because my name is Josh, and there was a kid's clothing brand when I was growing up called Oshkosh Bagash. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I got that quite a I bit. I think that's still around, but yeah, yeah. I, I understand that You know, as you age, you start seeing that place less and less. <laughs> exactly. I'm not wearing children's overalls. <laughs> is that a Wisconsin <laughs> brand? Oshkosh? I have I no know. idea. I have no idea. <laughs> I know, I know that brand. I used to wear that brand. My mother would like, did you, me to did you have their overalls? Buy Oshkosh Bagash stuff. <laughs> That's awesome. All right, finding out so much. Yes, and insulting our guest at the same time. So, <laughs> thank you for coming on, Josh. Josh? <laughs> no, I don't think so. Josh, Josh Bagash. <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm good. Oh, if I if I'm not good, I guess I'll. I'm trying to think what dramatic exit I could make. I could let the motor. I could have one of the motorcycles on my street. Rev. Yeah, just yeah. Hang the hang the <laughs> microphone out the window. Yeah, that's what I'll do. Awesome. <laughs> anyway, uh, as I said, we're here today to talk about the documentary American Factory, uh, which is now streaming on Netflix because it's September. Which means that while all over the world, critics better respected than us are at film festivals, seeing what <laughs> promises to be some of the greatest films of the year, we're stuck with whatever happens to land in America. And um, <laughs> specifically two, on on Netflix, it chapter two, you know, came out, and we were all like, "Oh yeah, we're gonna do it. We're gonna do it. We're gonna review it. We're gonna talk about it." And then the reviews came out, and we were like, "Yeah." Yeah, I don't want to spend three hours in the theater to, to talk about what is apparently a sort of okay but not very good movie. It's mm-hmm. super bloated. That is what I have heard. Yeah. Yeah. 
So we decided not to do it. We decided to do something else instead. Uh, before we get into it, though, the usual stuff. We got us on Twitter, at Film Stage Show, Facebook, The Film Stage Show. Email us, podcast com. Find us on uh, iTunes. Give us a comment. Give us a rating. And, of course, you can go to patreon.com slash thefilmstageshow in order to give us your money to help us produce more great content. We promise we're going to start doing classic episodes again, uh, but I don't know when. Uh, we got to work that out. Scheduling is hard. Anyway, we're also brought to you by Mubi, the online streaming cinema. Speaking of classics, Mubi every day introduces a new film that you have 30 days to watch. So you have a constantly rotating selection of 30 films to enjoy. They've got some great stuff on there presently. For instance, they've got Once Upon a Time in Anatolia. But also, Michael Snydell, you brought this up today. Film of the day when we're recording is Starred Up from David McKenzie, who directed Hell or High Water. And spread. <laughs> and spread. Which we... Why do we keep bringing that up? I don't know, because it's, it's fun. Why does but yeah, keep coming up on this podcast? But start up, I, I guess, you know, at this point, it's uh, it's Ben Mendelsohn and Jack O'Connell as a father and son in a prison. But it's... Um, I, I was really kind of impressed with its uh, balance between kind of formal rigor and... Uh, a daddy issue story and it's uh it's also just it, it feels really authentic and it doesn't feel like it's uh following like a traditional prison arc so yeah it, it's kind of a more unorthodox prison story a lot more about like emotional therapy and stuff and yeah i, I really liked that film i haven't seen it since wow 2013 that's that's a long time ago <laughs> yeah hopefully it's still good (laughs) well i uh am i I don't know if i'm alone with this i loved hell or high water i have watched it again recently and it holds up in my eyes uh so yeah i i double down on this can't wait to see start up i got 30 days to do it and if you go to movie.com slash film stage m-u-b-i.com slash film stage you too can check out Start Up, which is currently on Movie. So that's it for that. Uh, we are ready to talk about American Factory. Again, this film now streaming on Netflix tells the story of a uh, former GM plant that was bought by a Chinese billionaire who decides to turn it into an American branch of his glass factory empire. This film directed by Steven Bogner and Julia Reichert. And um yeah, let's uh let's listen to the trailer. We stand here today uh, with a plant that's closing, but I'm extremely proud of the people that work in this plant here. For a year and a half, I didn't have anything. We lost our home, we lost a vehicle. I have struggled to get back to middle class again. This is a historic project that is going to help grow this community, give people jobs, and give a future to your kids and my kids. Where you sit today used to be a General Motors plant, and now there are over 1,000 employees working here. Is this a union shop? It is our desire to not be. 
<laughs> All right, so that is a trailer for American Factory. As I said, out on Netflix now, so you can check it out at your leisure. Let's see what we thought about it. Um, usually we do like a spoiler or non-spoiler section. I don't know how much that really uh, applies to this, but we're going to start with our general thoughts and then move further and further into more detail as we go. So let's start with our guest. Josh, what'd you think of American Factory? I thought it was wonderful. Um, I first saw it at the Tribeca Film Festival in the spring, and then I watched it again in, I guess, a month ago or so before I interviewed the filmmakers. And I know that their philosophy for filmmaking isn't, you know, objectivity. It's fairness. They like to give everyone, every perspective, evil, uh, not evil, equal um, footing and perspective and place in the film. And um, I think this movie did that because when I was watching it, I was like, wow, like America, China has really terrible labor standards. And when I was talking to the filmmakers, they were like, wow. China's a really wonderful place for workers. I'm like, wow, we couldn't have had much like completely different more different perspectives than we already than we do here. And I was like, but the but I, when, when rewatching the movie, I was like, well, I can see how you would how you think that. And um of course them being there and firsthand, they have much deeper perspective than I do anyway, but I thought it was like one of the like most like thorough investigations of like American labor that I've seen in this century so far. And, you know, given like the political times room with like the trade war with China, I mean, you you really couldn't have predicted how um, like topical this piece would be given like um, this started, this was being developed like four to five years ago. Um, And I really think that, the um that the i wouldn't have expected this but the 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 chinese workers who come to america many of them for the first time have a perspective and a part in the or to play in the documentary that is as integral as the focus on american labor and i don't know for some reason i found that like surprising i was expecting it to be mostly from um uh steve and julia's perspective because they're from the area of dayton ohio where the factory is and that er- that area had gone through maybe a decade of of um extreme poverty um they made a documentary a few years back it's a short documentary it was uh, nominated for an oscar called the last truck it documented that very uh plant when it closed the GM plant. So for them to sort of be a part of this whole, in their own way, this, this narrative of the closing and then the rebirth of this, um, of this industry in their town, but to also not have, um, to be sort of taking to their sides or their perspectives so, so strongly was like a really wonderful choice on their part as filmmakers and as storytellers. And it, um, broadened the perspective uh, much white to a degree that was much wider than I would have anticipated going into it. So those are kind of like my, my thoughts on it. Yeah. I can't, I can't plug your 
your interview enough um over at thefilmstage.com i i read it and i was sort of i sort of went through the same thing as you where i was just like wait a second they just they what (laughs) and that's gonna play a lot into to my reaction to this film which we will get to but let's uh move on to bill graham sure um i had heard good things about this documentary coming in um and you know just the log line alone that you know a american factory is basically bought and then reopened after sitting vacant um to by a foreign company when a lot of I don't know if uh, if it's necessarily yeah, yeah I'll say that uh, a lot of Americans are kind of internationalism and uh, you know that's a that's a troubling idea that basically our saviors are are coming from China or some other outside source instead of our own um, and so it was interesting to see. Uh, the culture clash, but also just to understand that like in America, we are often tagged as people that overwork to basically live a lavish lifestyle. And this film kind of purports that maybe, maybe China overworks (laughs) to not live a lavish lifestyle. Um, so it's, it's interesting. Um, yeah, I I think, I think this documentary does a a great job of kind of showing a lot of balance and showing a lot of, uh, interesting ideas and, and kind of upending some, some ideas that, you know, maybe I had, had ingrained in uh, over the last few years or last decades. Um, not to say that this is necessarily the only text to uh, source those kind of, you know, ideas or opinions on, but uh, certainly it helps kind of uh, shine light on some struggles inside a, uh, inside an industry that's growing that, you know, is also automated and things of that nature. Um, I found the, the most interesting thing is, is I think the way this film opens and then closes, um, is, is kind of a, a foreboding, uh, message um so yeah no i i think i think this is definitely worthy of of talking about um but also worth seeing for sure so yeah i liked it all right michael snydell yeah i i think bill is uh is definitely getting into something that i was thinking about is a lot is about this idea of of balancing that nationalism and trying to understand globalization and and i think that this film does just a really excellent approachable way of um kind of giving each each like you know almost faction equal shrift like even someone like chairman cow who you know starts as an eccentric billionaire and has some more insidious ideas uh, especially from an american perspective but it it is really fascinating the ways that it brings in you know when you have so many chinese employees and they have their own philosophies that are related to communism and are are, you know are are still about this exceptionalism but it's it, it it's it's mutated from what it is in america and and i think that the ways that this shows this and uh makes it uh fair and balanced and 
also, uh, I, I, Josh was already mentioning, but like coming from two documentarians who did Last Truck, I, which I actually watched, and I would um, – it's not nearly as essential as, as this documentary, but it is available on Prime. It's only about 40 minutes, and it is fascinating thinking about these two documentarians you know, uh, making a movie in their hometown and spending so much time with these people at a GM plant, and uh, by the time – you know it, that they get to American Factory. It's kind of amazing that you know they are able to get so much access. And I, I think Josh, you actually got into this a little bit in your interview. I thought in a really uh, fantastic way is, is they were talking about how um, management was always trying to give them rides, <laughs> <laughs> um, which is you know really interesting when you're t- then talking about two dividing forces of someone who wants a union and the management and what well i guess three sides and then the chinese employees who are you know given a lot of propaganda but also very much have their own philosophies that were formed and um i can't help but think the last thing i want to say is uh i was thinking a lot about jazz films um a touch of sin and ashes pierce white which which uh came out uh on these shores earlier this year like i I can't help but think that this makes such an interesting companion piece to Mm. some of those and then um oh and then finally the i I thought the way that this handles language barriers uh which Mm -hmm. brought to mind like things like the farewell and western last year um i i just was kind of continually amazed with the scope and also how entertaining this was i i just i found a lot of these people just really charismatic um especially like uh junming wang um who is one of the main supervisors and mm-hmm. looks like 35 and is a pack apparently like 50 <laughs> which <laughs> is amazing but um yeah i i honestly uh loved this movie um and so I'm I'm really happy that we get a chance to talk about it. And I, I really hope um, more Americans watch it <laughs> <laughs> just well, to get a more empathetic eye. <laughs> this is one of the um, the first films, if not the first film, released through the Obama's um, Higher Ground shingle. Yes. That they yeah. set up at Netflix. And I think. It, oh, I'm, I'm sure that won't cause a firestorm at all. <laughs> Well, it's interesting. Like so, so there's. Let's. I guess I'll just talk about my feelings about this film. Sure. I um. I don't know how I feel about it as a film. I found it sort of boring, but the but conversely, everything that it's about, I find deeply interesting. I um, mm-hmm. I found myself really wrapped up in the questions that were being raised. Because you basically have America <laughs> failing its workers, you know, GM shuts down a plant, all this stuff happens. And then, you know, the the waking dragon that is China comes in and, and they're like, hey, we're going to buy this factory, we're going to clean it up, we're going to give you Americans some jobs. And then they're like staunchly anti-union, which is just kind of funny considering how here in America we look at unions and we're like, oh basically communism on the rise in our country <laughs> and so there's a weird cross-cultural you know dissonance there mm. but then you, you you see some of the stuff that happens in china and i have friends who 
are very down on capitalism. And everything that happened in China reminded me of the ways that my friends look at working in America, <laughs> but turned up to 11. Like, I work in an office, not doing anything, like, hard or dangerous. And, you know, the, the, the company will occasionally be like, we're all going to go get ice cream or like you know we're having a happy hour after work and everyone's encouraged to come and we're gonna have a christmas party like bring your families and we're just like oh get out of our lives you are you are my job you are the thing that i do to do the things that i love stop trying to take up more time like if 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 i am at home and i receive a text message that's like there's a crisis can you hop on right now I have no compunction about saying fuck off till eight o'clock because my daughter is <laughs> until then and I'm not doing shit until I'm there. And in this movie, there's people who are like, I see my family once a year because I moved from the country to live in the workers union camp that surrounds this factory so I could work 12 hour days, seven days a week and like do as much overtime as humanly possible because, you know, I've got to do it for the good of the company. So it's really... Overtime is mandatory, that they say at one point. It's basically like, it's not even overtime. It's just like, you are on demand. <laughs> you know? Like, the, the the fact that they ever, like, give people set hours seems to be a running joke. You know? It's just like, yeah, it should be 12 hours, but most of the time it's 18. You know, I'll just be here whenever they want me to. And so it was weird to me to see that. like, there, And it's things like that. It's the culture clashes, it's the differences, and it's making me think about the concepts of like the difference between the two the two countries the two systems of government and how that affects the economies and the working class that i like had my brain in a jumble <laughs> I, I kept kind of hoping that the the filmmakers would finally at some point inject their point of view just so that i could like understand if they thought that this was a good thing or not I, I mean, at one point, the the uh, one of the filmmakers, she grew up. Her father was a union man, yeah. and like it, it definitely seems like unions are a big. I, I, I'm just I'm just saying that seems a big part of their background. Oh, yeah, I, I I could absolutely feel that they thought that the union was a good idea. Um, but what's what's interesting to me is that we look at a union, we see like a workers' collective, and we think communism, socialism. The end of American values, the <laughs> rising up, of, you know, all this other stuff. And China sees it and they're just like, it's another excuse for these fucking Americans to be fat and lazy. <laughs> you know, because when, when, when we talk about communism, we talk about pulling together, subsuming your life into the grand machine of the state and getting shit done. And when Americans talk about unionizing, they want four three hour breaks per eight hour shift. They want to not have to do shit. They want to be given glasses and gloves when they're going through broken glass. <laughs> How dare them? Stand in a 400 degree room. Those lazy Americans. Right. And so it was kind of fun to watch the Chinese like say like, you know, uh, Americans, uh, they got fat fingers. They can't work as fast. They're pretty lazy. You got to stroke a donkey along with its fur. American <laughs> donkeys. But at the same time, it was it was just so weird because like when they went to China, I could almost feel a sense of awe coming from everyone in the company and possibly from the filmmakers. Yes, there was. And I was just like, but it's so 
bad. Like, there's just, like, are you not, I, yeah, we're, we're going to have to talk about it. Um, the, yeah. but where, where my, where my, I guess the downfalls that I felt in this documentary were, are just like from the filmmaking and the pacing. I, I just found it to be kind of lugubrious at times. And I think that it's, it's a credit to them, the filmmakers, that they were able to get what they got and were able to put everything together and, and make, you know, these little snippets of insight. But I was more interested in the, the basic third person omniscient, you know, staring into a situation than I was about whatever narrative they were trying to put together. Gotcha. So I definitely think it's a worthwhile view just to be able to get the nuggets of information out of it. But I don't know how I feel about it as like a piece of constructed art. Interesting. Yeah. It's in that way. It may be more utilitarian than, than you want it to be, you know, um, informative, but not necessarily entertaining, but you know, uh, it's always troubling when, when you take something factual and you're like, this is a piece of entertainment. And, and then on the other hand, it's also like, but it's also truth. And it's like, well, which one do you want it to be more of? And this one definitely leans a little bit more towards, let's tell a, a like you were saying, an omniscient perspective mm-hmm. um, instead of a actual perspective where they're kind of inserting their views or things like that. Yeah, um, we but, talked last week about like, you know, documentaries that can kind of do dirty by sure. the audience in their attempt to be more entertaining, like um, mm-hmm. Hammerskold. And uh, I think Michael brought up The Imposter, which is like a devilishly fun movie. But I, it, you can kind of feel that there's a lot on the edges and the margins that they might be leaving out so they can focus on the more interesting characters. Sure. So I, I appreciate everything this movie did. I appreciate the information it put out there that I now am able to view and think about. I just, um, I think it, I think that, you know, in general is something to sit down and watch. It's less than compelling. That's fascinating to me because this is the most entertaining doc I've seen in years. That's weird. Yeah, no, I. Yeah, but again, like, I I don't want that to be a thing that dissuades anyone from watching it because I think sure. again this is the weirdest situation for me. I think a lot of the stuff that's in it needs to be seen and like kind of talked about and discussed to see like, you know, because I I don't I hate when we get too political on this, but like. There's a presidential election coming up. Some of the people in the democratic field, you know, proudly wear like the badges of like socialism and stuff. And um, I think it's just it's one of those things to look at where like you see people who are like your job shouldn't consume your life. You know, you have the freedom to be a human being. We should be communists. Because presumably it would allow for that. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, it, it doesn't. <laughs> They just take you over. It also might have hurt the case for communism and unionization in my head that I've been rewatching The Americans recently. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> and, sure. Uh, I guess there's between like Chinese communism, which, you know, looks a lot from the outside like the worst form of capitalism and Soviet communism, which, you know, was riddled with corruption and famine and everything and famine is is a lot different you know the chinese had the famine for a while too so it's interesting to see that like they've been bootstrapping themselves up to the point now that they're like 
one of the biggest growing industrial powers on earth i think josh you brought up in your um in your interview that like they purchased the plurality of all of the carbon credits on cap and trade right mm-hmm. they they are the biggest perpetrators of carbon emissions in the world which which uh chairman is this is it, what's his name mal and it's not uh, <laughs> it's i think it's i think it's cal okay yeah. uh yeah. basically the ceo the the owner sure. operator of, of this company of uh food uh, why can't I? Um, you know, he even admits he's he's like, you know, I used to look out at China and see fields of wildflowers and just like all this nature. And now I look around and I just see industrialism. And am I part of that? Am I, you know, spoiling the earth or, you know, and there's a point in this documentary where they you know, the Americans basically complain and they're like, we just saw them dumping chemicals into like just a, a, uh, a drain. Like that's not okay. Like you can't do that. And the paint drips to the, yeah. Yeah. It's just like, what are they doing? Like, do they just not know that it's not, that's not allowed or is that just, okay over there and you definitely get a sense look um i don't envy any country ever having to regulate and control a billion people that sounds like a a true nightmare um because we can barely do it and we have like 320 million people and you know just go ahead and and times it by three and then let's let's see how we handle that you know um and of course with rapid growth huge infrastructure that has to be kind of put in place um yeah, there's there's a lot of nightmare scenarios of you know why China is where it's at and also why they do the things that they do. Um and that's not to give necessarily make excuses for them, but uh it is to make excuses for them. <laughs> well, there's a, I'm sorry, Josh, go ahead. Um uh Steve Bogner in my in our conversation, I think he he says something that kind of reveals what I think the um, what the heart of this this movie is. Um, he goes, China has state sponsored capitalism. In many ways, these communists are the best capitalists in the world right now. Mm-hmm. And it's fascinating because you know later on in the conversation or early in the conversation, we talk about how they do have um, unions in China. Mm-hmm. And for specifically, Fuyao has a union, but it's more like a union. Um, the unions are more like community organizers, and not even in the sense of like bringing healthcare to people or political organizing, but in the sense of like bringing people together for like team sports and stuff. And what's fascinating is the union headquarters is. Um, on site, um, uh, of, Fuya. of course it is. Because how else would the workers get there? Well, 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 <laughs> that well yeah, well, part in the movie, you know, is that it, like they're they're like Fuya headquarters and Communist Party headquarters, and then it would right. be like, also here's this guy. He is a manager of the company. 
Also, he is the brother-in-law of some guy, and he is the Communist Party chair. Oh, no, not just the brother-in-law of some guy, the brother-in-law of the owner Chairman of the Chairman Howe. Yeah. 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 So right. that, that seems like a conflict. <laughs> yeah, like the, the union headquarters had a Communist Party office inside of it. So, like, there, in a sense, there's some immediate um, generational you know, the last 20, 30 years benefits of this state-sponsored capitalism. In another sense, um, like there, if someone does have like a, a problem with like their, with management or what have you, there's so much integration of like state, um, private business and, and everything in between that like you have to walk an even finer line than like talking to your, HR person in your 12 person office. Um, so it doesn't seem like it's an easier form of capitalism. In fact, it seems like it's, um, whereas ours is more like independent and, and cutthroat. Theirs is like, they have to like toe the line just to keep their status quo, which Mm -hmm. to me seems like a little bit harder, especially because you have like these people like, who like well, there's this one guy in the movie uh, Wong he yeah. came to came to Dayton he's been there for 2 years hadn't seen his kids in forever he's at the factory you know 12 hours a day sometimes even on and he goes in on Sundays and it's like he's fighting to keep his status quo and his status quo is while he's not starving like his grandparents were in many senses um his just livelihood and just being able to see the family he supports is like non-existent so it's tough me you know like i have a child and i i go out of my way to see her as much as possible like you know i i go to work extremely early on the days that i have to go in the office i've actually in in a (laughs) in a um a master class of leveraging whatever you know capital that you have in your office i now work from home three days a week very nice yeah i know um and so i like Everything in my life is to minimize the amount of time that I am not with my child. And mm-hmm. so when I hear these people in this movie going like, yeah, I see my kids like once or twice a year for like two days whenever I can like get out of here. And I'm like, I don't understand. You have children. Like, where are they? Right. And then you find out that like they basically have a company town. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, they it's 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 like Milton Hershey who yes, who created Hershey, Pennsylvania, to house all of his workers, but it's a little worse because, like, the families don't get to come. Right. You know, it's it's um, th- like back before the the labor movement in America, like you had these things, these company towns, where it'd be like, all right, you know, you work for coal, so you're gonna live in this town. You get yeah. your money that you could spend at the company store, but you could still be with your family. And I don't know, like, there's just something weirdly insidious about how, like, slapping a new label on something suddenly makes these grievous, I feel, like, destructive policies seem reasonable and logical. Right. What what I find fascinating about that is... um if you compare it with like some of the um, other prominent or at least critically prominent Chinese films that have come out this year with, say, The Farewell. And in The Farewell, 
you have this emphasis on family to the point of you see yourself as part of the community and as, not as much as you see yourself as part as, as an individual. Um, and then, but then you look at, you compare that with the lives of just your average worker, um, depicted by or represented by Wong in this film. And then if you look at like one child nation, um, there was these forced sterilizations. And of course the whole point of the movie is you can only have one child and, mm-hmm. and, and there's, so these things where it's like, yeah, okay. There's this sense of, um, being part of like the, of the whole, and a part of being a part of, you know, a family and then also your extended family being your neighbors and all. But there's some very, I, I don't hesitate to say, uh, radical sacrifices that have to be made to maintain that, um, that identity. And to those sacrifices are sacrificing what could be an extension of your family or what could be time with your family. And to me, that's like, um, a, a glaring hypocrisy of a more authoritarian capitalism. Um, I, cause I wouldn't call this, this isn't, this isn't communism per se. It's some hybrid. I mean, they can, they're considered a communist country still, but they're participating in, in, in communism. Capital. I mean, sorry, in capitalism, it, it, capitalism, in globalism. Yeah. Right. So it's just like a fascinating thing, but the sacrifices, like I said, that, that they're making to maintain an idea that doesn't even, really support the idea of, of being part of the whole, like the sacrifices to be part of the whole don't make sense to me. Like the, the sense of leisure that we have in the West does not, I mean, this, I mean, this is what the whole point of the movie is. There's this culture clash of, of the sense of leisure in the West and the sense of, uh, being almost, uh, available 24 seven for work to be part of, you know, the community in, in the East. Of course, these are, massive generalizations well, yeah. there's far more to both both cultures than what i just said but for the point of this movie and the point of discussing labor uh standards in both countries there are some like pretty massive differences i, um, I think it's even uh, go ahead brian well i was gonna say you know i i again have a lot of friends who are like pretty openly communist and it's it is just funny to see and you know the americans is a show on fx it's not a perfect historical note but like i have listened to the creators talk about their writing process and um you know discussions with like people on the show who were like there specifically to help with the formatting of the scenes that take place actually in russia you know to to give an idea of like the historical accuracy that's obviously then like pumped up for dramatic effect but like in this movie it's the same thing where it's this concept of like your life isn't your own you're supposed to help serve the state like we're all lifting each other up and the way we do that is by giving up as much of our lives as possible <laughs> and and you know it if if you were a communist if you see the state as as more important than an individual then that makes sense so what's always weird to me is the number of friends that i have who are like i want to be a communist so that i can pursue painting like it's it's these people who are like, you know, workers should be able to afford a home and have free time and, you know, be with their families. And, you know, oh, like if 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 mechanization can take over enough, then we can have a universal basic income. And then, like, there will be an explosion of arts and culture. And I'm like, if you look at all of the places that have ever tried to make that work, that is not what happens ever. And it just it 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 either gets markedly worse because 
instead of a capitalistic society attempting to find the most efficient and profitable ways to do things, which is how we're able to, like, feed ourselves and get iPhones for, like, less than $4,000. You know, and there's a lot of human exploitation that goes into that. But that allows the amount of leisure that you think would continue if we shifted into a society wherein a place like Fuyao is is situated. <laughs> you know, it's just weird. Like, there's there's this thing that happens to the Americans where, like, every time that they see, like, an American person having a fun time, they talk about how weak and lazy we are <laughs> because there there is, almost as a necessity in a communist system, this idea that you have to constantly be working towards the betterment of the state or else you are a drain on it. And you're letting down all your, your comrades, your brothers and sisters. And so I, I always find it very interesting that, like, just again, that my friends who are like, you know, communism, it can work. It's like they, they keep saying that with this eye towards a future that has never been supported by or even seems to be the end goal of communism. Well, we've just been canceled. Sorry, everyone. <laughs> I'm not communist. You know, I know it's a cool, groovy thing, but like, you know, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> no, I know. No, and I, 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 I largely agree with what you're saying. And I just know that in like our film circles, you know, this is very um, anathema. This <laughs> and it, like I said, that's one of the reasons why it kind of, I was watching this movie and I'm like, isn't it so interesting? This movie is clearly pro-union, but also is a pretty sharp rebuke of the concept of, like, national socialism, communism, whatever you want to call it. And yet, what, in your interview, they were like, you know, look at all the good that they're able to do. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's like, well, you know, they lifted these people out of poverty and, and people were starving and now they're not. And it's like, you were aware that they started starving because of, like, Mao's Great Leap Forward five-year plan thing that kept resulting in... <laughs> mass famine i don't know it's just it's very straight like uh, it it i this is one of the things that the movie i don't think was attempting to do but that it did for me that has made me like it and not really be able to stop thinking about it since i watched it yesterday is just this concept of like the cognitive dissidence that like you are working towards a future and you believe this thing is the tool to get you there and yet there is no historical evidence to support that concept well everybody wants to be the exception right i mean that's that's not uncommon uh whether it's in relationships whether it's in uh business practices whether it's in leading a country everybody wants to be the exception to what what history has basically told us is usually a bad idea right um you know so there's that um, but I think, you know, kind of turning a little bit away from kind of that, that topic and that, that point, um, I think one thing that's very interesting is, is just how they relate to the unions and how the union talk sparks up so quickly in this film and in the timeline of of Fu Yao being in America, which I found like almost disastrous from the outset. Um, 
you know, they haven't even opened. They apparently haven't even successfully made a good piece of glass. And yet there's already rumors and talks and this fucking senator comes in and is like, I support unions. And you're just like, what the fuck are you doing right now? This is a multi-billion dollar company that that's coming in and providing jobs. And before y'all are even on the ground running, you're like, I think we need to unionize. And it's like, whoa, that sounds like a real dumb idea. And this, <laughs> like, is, and this is difficult even to talk about because like, you know, a company coming in and creating a factory and then, you know, needing to staff that factory. We talk about it of like, providing jobs or giving jobs but like that that seems like very benevolent and and like there is a kind of benevolence that comes from them deciding to specifically because they decided to like reopen this closed factory you know sure it, it feels like a decision they made with some kind of benevolence but like if wherever they open it those jobs are going to have to come from and so it's the people who decide to take those jobs you know for whatever compensation that are really doing you know, the, the gifting and the sacrificing, you know, they're the ones who are coming in. But I, I agree with you, Bill, that, you know, there's that first question when they're talking about like, hey, we're opening up this factory, you know, jobs, training, blah, blah, oh, yep, blah. It yep. sounds like, is it a union shop? And they're like, uh, we're hoping that it won't be. Yeah. And because otherwise in, this, this company's gone. <laughs> right. Like they, they don't want it. And, and you don't have to come here if that's what yep. you need in your life and like i know people who are in unions i think that unions can and have been a source of a lot of good you know every labor day uh people on facebook post a thing where it's like if you like the weekends and vacation days and all this other stuff like thank a union and it's like yeah that's 100 percent true for some reason in this film as i was watching it and i'd, I'd love to hear what everyone else thinks I just kept thinking, like, you guys haven't even proven that you that you deserve this job. Like, you're yeah, you. It's it seems like really harsh to say, but they're like, we're losing. Yeah. We've already lost forty million dollars. We are producing very substandard glass. All this stuff is happening, and they're already talking about unionizing. Like, I guess in my mind. And I don't know if this is like the capitalist American sickness that lives inside of me. <laughs> I'd be like, maybe I should prove that yeah. I deserve more by doing a great job, at least for a little while, and then seeing if I need to unionize in order to leverage more because they're not giving back what I'm putting in. Like, yeah, I, I, I mean, know, Michael, just do you <laughs> I'm curious what you think. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I think that gets a little bit more into something that I, I, I'm worried is missing a little bit from this conversation because we're all going to be coming at it from an ethnocentric point of view. And that's not, um, guys, did I lose you? No, we're here. No. Oh, oh sorry. I, I didn't hear anything for a sec. Well, I, we're like we're all, we're all gonna, we're all coming at this from an ethnocentric point of view. And like, I very much agree with you that the, the labor practices, the system that they're living in is, you know, it, it's, it, it is fundamentally toxic. 
to their lives. And you see that as well. I, I mean, we already spoke about uh, Wong Ki and you get that great scene where he's um, smoking, where he's smoking a cigarette and he's like, you know, I, I haven't cried since I was a, in a teenager, but I cried when I first came here. And, and you get a sense of the cracks that are actually in these people in both Chinese factories and in the state in Ohio factory. And I think that, I, I think that what this film does and why I think it's so much better than um, than an editorial piece about, you know, the failures of um, of, uh, you know, authoritarian communism, as, uh, as Josh dubbed it, is that it, it it understands that there is a middle ground between these two and there is still a, a failure to understand that goes beyond simply communism. Like you, you see it a lot with two, you know, you, you, you see a Chinese supervisor and an American worker arguing. And there's that great scene where the guy's like, they're both in the wrong. <laughs> but, <laughs> I, and like, I, I think that that is what this, this film especially gets across is this idea. Like even when, Oh man, I found when they were watching that PowerPoint. So, such a good scene. There were a lot like, of which, which one? The the early on where all of the Chinese workers are in kind of a uh, – they're at desks and uh, listening to a PowerPoint about what Americans are. Uh, about gotcha. how they yeah, live, how, yeah. How, how we live lavish lives and how Europe we're and independent. In shorts and flip-flops, they're an American. But yes. it's – it's not only a lavish. It's like I, I think that there are there are obviously some times where they're like, oh, we're so lazy and everything. But it's also, you know, it is that different. It is that dichotomy of casual and severe. And like you, you see that even if you want to talk about the Americans, Ryan. Like, <laughs> like, like it's even the first line of this isn't the first line actually. Um, oh, this country's only existed for 200 years. Yeah. Like, like, and that I think that is fascinating. And that doesn't take away from all the fucked up parts of the history of something like China or Russia. But there is such a different philosophy there that I think this illustrates. And it doesn't lose it. And, and you know, like, as much as it's bizarre to watch propaganda where – you know, the blue man group is doing, you know, uh, their window rendition. Like it's, it, it's also seeing that man cry watching this bizarre example of solidarity is like, it's, it's perverse, but it's also, it's also deeply powerful in the same way that like I found, um, R Rob, Rob Hayer, who was, um, is the furnace supervisor who takes in um, – I think Wang Yi is who he actually takes in. They're like shooting guns together and he invited, invited them over for Thanksgiving dinner. Yeah, and, and I think that those scenes, as much as like they could be easy um, points of empathy, they're not. They're like – they're so much more naughty and, and I think that that – that dissonance that you're feeling, Brian, is what makes this film what it is. And well, also, like, one more thing: the union avoidance guy. What a piece of shit! <laughs> the guy who leads like the seminar. Yes, what a piece of shit! 
Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah, that you know, seems I think really I, weird. Though it's it's interesting. Like, so so I just got done. Well, I didn't just get done. I said it like at the opening of this podcast. Like, I just got done saying that. Um, you know, I was able to leverage another job opportunity to get a I won't say massive, but a sizable raise and uh, three work from two dollars. My current employer. <laughs> Dust the bragging dust off my shoulder, um, which is, uh, you know, I did that because I was able to talk directly with management. Yeah. So there's a part of my brain that's like, if I were in a union, like, would I be able to have the same? Would I would I have been able to basically? I keep saying leverage. I sort of mean blackmail. My company is <laughs> giving me, giving me more, and um. I don't know. That's a that's a great question. But luckily, I'm I'm in a I'm in a situation where I don't need to fear for my job for any real reason. You know. Yeah. I mean, there's some dark implications of even the last like half an hour of this is really where they start. Oh man, you get that one scene where he's like, "I'm really close to this guy, but he won't be here in two weeks," and just that it's it's brutal. And it's, but it, you can also, I think, understand on some level, even within the, the system that they live in, and understanding that the other Fuyao companies are just like excelling. And, and it, it's like, you know, it's, it's fucked up that Chairman Cao came here and wants to have Chinese regulations in America. Like, that's, yeah. without even getting into nationalist sentiment that's not how that works well, but like because, you know like most of the thi- like like i loved the scene where he's like why is this here it's ugly it should be higher up and it should be over there and it's a fire <laughs> alarm yeah and they're like it's it's a legal require it has to be that high he's like well can we at least move it into the corner and they're like we'll look into it Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and they make that $35,000 change order, you know, and they're just like, yeah. why are we doing this? And and it's because he wants it done. And it's like, okay, but like, why? <laughs> you know, and they don't they don't get an opportunity to talk about that or or hash that out. I mean, that's that's a fucking person's salary for a year, you know, and it's like, yeah, we're not going to hire that person because he wants this door of his factory changed to a different location. And it's like, what, what are, what are we doing? But ultimately whose call is it? Is it, it's his. So you do what he says. Right. Um, but I, I think one thing that's so interesting is we talk about how like devilish or just, just wild it is to see the culture and to see how like they have this song and dance that they do during this like uh year year anniversary party in in the Fuyao headquarters and they are basically singing and talking about or singing a, a song about like production and work and it's sure. it's frightening, but it's also understandable that they go through so much effort to make it feel like you're part of a company, like you're part of a greater good, because otherwise these people would probably just go insane. Because you have to understand working for 12 hours a day, you have to understand that 
like doing the same ha- thing. There has to be some reason that you're willing to do, go through that. And ultimately, maybe having the idea that this is for the greater good, that my sacrifice is helping everybody in China, but especially my company, right? Who is prosperous. And why are we prosperous? Why do I have a job? Because we work hard because I work 12 hours a day and I see my family once or twice a year. And this is okay because look at all this pomp and circumstance and look at all this celebration and look at how kind of militaristic this is. And, you know, you try and implement that over in America and we're like, fuck you. I want to go home on the weekends. Right. You know, I see my family. I know. I know what's important. Okay, so I have I have so many things in my brain and I don't want to monopolize. So I will I will say one of them very quickly related to what Bill said. First of all, when those little kids came out dressed (laughs) as tiny chicks. I was like, that is frighteningly adorable. That is the cutest thing that has ever scared the shit out of me. <laughs> um, so there is that. The other thing is, I I listened to a podcast called Last Podcast on the Left, and um, they talk a lot about cults. You know, they've had a couple of episodes on mm. different cults, and one of the most important things that a cult can do is separate you from your family, mm. so that you then grow to depend on the cult, and the cult will tell you how important you are to the cult and how important the cult is to you. They will isolate you from society. They will create songs and uh, lingo and language that cannot be understood by the outside world to further incapacitate you in an outside situation. So like Scientologists were to come up to you and start talking about, you know, how, Oh, you know, it's such a hard day I had, you know, my, my brother-in-law is an SP and he threw my, like, Thetans out of whack, and uh, I've got to go recenter <laughs> on the E-meter. I hope I don't get stuck in a comm lag. You just are like, what the hell are you talking about? And so you can't in any way talk to that person or interface with them. And so I, um, in seeing the way that they're like, well, I only see my family twice a year at most, and I live here, and I, you know, the Communist Party is also situated here, so my government is also my job. And uh, we have this thing, and like, if I really want to, I could get married here at a mass ceremony, paid for by the company. You know, you're uh, like, that's that's in my brain. I just like started hearing the words "cult" screamed over and over again. <laughs> so was, uh, you know, it's the um the, those the kids that were. This is just a little aside. The kids that were performing um, as the chickens were actually kids of the workers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So like, it's like. At every level, um, like the company's integrated in your life, you know, like your kids are involved. You can have a wedding there. You can play like racquetball. It's like, like in a sense, it's like kind of a good thing um, for people who are like, especially people who like don't have like a culture and like community they've built around them, you know, because they're coming from other parts of the country, you know, to have these, to have these things that you, you can you can have better relations with your coworkers. You can h- hang out outside of work. And like, I know like I, I say that and, and I'm trying to be charitable when I say it. Cause I even say it with a, 
an internal resistance to it. I'm like, I don't want anyone to tell me to hang out with my coworkers. I don't want anybody to tell me to like play racquetball, but you know, in a, like in a sense, you know, capitalism is new to China. So they're very much a, you know, they've, they're the biggest, um, the most successful capitalist in the world right now. But in terms of like how old their country is compared to how long they've been using this system, it is pretty new. So yes. it's like, these things are helpful for them. Um, in the immediate term there, but I also want to hold intention, um, that there are some like big costs that to, you know, their sense of self, their sense of family outside of just viewing their selves as part of like the larger, like Chinese family or the Fuyao family. But, um, yeah, I mean, there are some, there are some good things that are happening with that too. It's interesting that you mentioned kind of uh, the the niceties maybe that you can kind of view it and it made me kind of reflect on my time in college and, you know, how a lot of people view college unless they go – and this is not to put down community colleges or, or smaller colleges where people just leave on weekends. But generally, when you go to a large university, you're staying on campus, you live on campus, and you are separated from a lot of your family a lot of times. And, you know, you basically spend what? You know, you – you go to class all fucking day you get <laughs> back and you study 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 and then what do you do you go back to class and then you study 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 and then maybe you hold like a part-time job or you know a full-time job if you're able um and so your basic you know livelihood is tied up into studying and working and learning and then you know, a lot of your friends end up becoming people from the universities that you've never fucking met in your life. You know, they're coming from all sorts of different areas of the state or different states or different countries. And so it's just kind of this big melting pot. And yeah, you know, they, they have fucking fraternities and sororities and they have all these groups and they have these sports events and, you know, where you have like a song, a fight song and you have a mascot and you have a team that you cheer on versus the other fucking university and it's like why do i hate that university oh because they are you know 200 miles that direction so we hate them and it's like okay sure yeah they're purple we're blue let's do this you know <laughs> um and so it, it is it does kind of remind me of my time going to college where you kind of end up enveloped in if you allow it, if you are, you know, uh, able um, and willing, you end up kind of enveloped in this kind of society of going to college and being a part of whatever university you're part of. And, you know, then you leave and you're like, I kind of missed that. And I can understand why it, you know, and I had a, a trouble or a, a little bit of trouble when I had made so many good friends while I was kind of developing as a human, you know, through my teenage years, late teenage years, and kind of discovering who I was as a person. And, you know, then you graduate college, and then a lot of times you end up moving back home temporarily because you don't, you know, land your, your first big-time job right out of college. And then you're just like, well, who the fuck are these schmucks back home? Like, I don't know anybody, you know? And and you start start kind of wondering, like, I spent four years away from here, and now I'm back. 
Now what do I do? You know, um, all your friends live over in a different area. Um, so it's, it's fascinating that, you know, these kind of communal, um, company headquarters with, you know, uh, dorms and cafeterias and like play areas. And then they have all this song and dance. And yeah, it, it very much reminds me of in a twisted way of being in college again. And how if you come from a, a widely different part of the country, maybe you see this as, you know, yes, it, maybe this isn't ideal, but it's certainly better than not having that kind of stuff and working 12 hours a day and, you know, not, still not seeing my family, you know. Um, I, um, it's, in, in watching yeah. this movie, I was reminded a lot of, uh, the time that I spent at a company that shall remain nameless. Um, they were an education technology firm that had a very like startup attitude. And, um, the best attitude. Uh, <laughs> so like they, it, every, everything about our company was about changing the world for the better and helping people and making the world a better place. And, upending paradigms and disrupting paradigms and we weren't fans of paradigms um and they leveraged that sense of you're doing this not for yourself not even for our company but for the world at large into getting us to work hellacious hours like mm -hmm. terrible hours and i remember going i was only at the company for like a year and two months um and I, uh, I went to one company meeting in Disney World and, uh, it, it was, um, it was horrifying to me. You know, we, we sat in this giant, uh, hall, uh, like a, it's like a convention hall. Um, mm -hmm. there was a giant stage where uh, celebrities that had been hired to come and talk to us about how important we were mm -hmm. talked. There was a band um, that was made of people who worked for the company that sang oh, pop Jesus. Um, that they had reworked some of the lyrics to. Oh, no. And you know, it, a person from a university who was a partner of ours came up onto the stage and was like, this is my, I don't know, third or fifth or whatever time coming to one of these. And, you know, my wife asked me one time, "What what is it like there? And, she, and he said, it's like a cross between like a promotional event and like a, a old time revival church type of thing. And I was like, yeah, that, that's a terrifying combination. <laughs> and I, I don't know that I'm happy that I'm here. And it, it really was like, you're part of this. I almost said the name of the company. You're part of the blank family. Like here's the hashtag tweet it out. And I got out, um, was fired <laughs> for being late one day. Um, but primarily because, I couldn't hit the numbers that they were asking for. They were asking for like these crazy possible numbers that I just couldn't hit. And my boss didn't like me. And so I got fired and I was like, Oh crap, I've been fired. Never been fired from a job before. How am I going to live without this particular job? I was finally doing something important. <laughs> I have all these friends here. I was just about to go back to Disney world. I got fired like the week before the next company trip. Oof. And then a funny thing happened about seven hours later. I'm sitting at home, I'm drinking a beer, and I start thinking about everything that I had been through for that year. Mm -hmm. And I say to myself, holy shit, 
what the fuck has been wrong with me? And it is a, I think it's, I think it is a particularly American thing that's like, it's just, it's hard to envision caring about something that much. Like, and, and, you know, we were, again, helping people take distance learning classes that were actually like fully accredited so that it wasn't like you were getting it from Phoenix University or whatever, but like you'd actually get a degree from like USC or, some other like really good college and you know the degree was no different than if you went there in person because of this great system that we'd set up and and so like that's a thing that's very easy to leverage into feeling like you're changing the world i find it a lot more difficult to think of autoglass in that way <laughs> and so it was one of my favorite aspects of this movie that i think actually taught like is a is a uh what's the word uh, an example of like the good filmmaking that that does happen every now and then is when they watch the the workers in China form up into like a military straight line, yeah. number off, clap and like say all this stuff, and then the guy sort of tries to do it in America, and he can't really, he can't really commit to it because yeah. he realizes the weird absurdity of it. And none of the workers are having it either. And I feel like they must have done that like once or twice and then just abandoned it. Like it just does mm-hmm. not seem as though it was going well at all. It is fascinating too that they call – at one point the Chinese people do call that exact attribute passion. Like it, it, it's not – it's nothing about obedience. It's about passion. Right. Well, the, 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 other thing, the other thing that I noticed is during that – uh, I, I think it's a, a Chinese speaker that is speaking in Chinese to a bunch of Chinese workers that he's kind of having a meeting with. And he says passion and passion is in English. It's not in Chinese. And I was like, is there not a word for passionate in Chinese? And I didn't want to think that that's actually true. Maybe maybe passion is such a familiar word that it's kind of become universal but i was just fascinated that and you know i'm fascinated by a lot of things that kind of sneak through where culturally you know maybe you think there's there's a different word for it but you know i mean we've adopted words and pieces of other languages as well in that way um but i was struck by the fact that passion seems like such a such a very specific word that i was just like wait why isn't that word in like why isn't he using a chinese version of that and i don't i don't know that was that was interesting but yeah uh it, it seems like it, a him trying to implement that like uh, what probably a year in or like 6 months into this job is like uh that's that's way too late man like uh <laughs> you know if if we had started day one like this okay maybe you would have been able to kind of get some buy-in but like trying to pivot like six months in people are gonna be like what the fuck are we doing like it's um, it's interesting that you bring that up i think that that sort of brings us back to that that other idea of like from the outset people are like we're gonna unionize right like there's gonna be a union we've got to become part of the union and it, it 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 just brings me back to that concept of like and again this feels weird to say but like i don't feel like you've earned that that level of 
the yeah. leverage yet. It just it doesn't. Well, it's it's basically asking. Josh, it's, I, I wanted to ask Josh because I don't know if you answered this directly, but like, did you feel that at all watching the movie or even talking to them? Like, do you think that's the type of thing that did you? I don't know. The movie honestly may, sometimes made me feel very ashamed of <laughs> the American workforce. So I'm curious what your thoughts on that are. Um. So the first time I watched it, I didn't really have a perspective on the on them expecting um, to unionize from the outset. Knowing what I knew the second time around, and then learning just this sort of being the gateway to learn more about the labor movement in America and what have you, I was thinking, hmm, no, I think they these are people who have had labor like manual labor jobs before. They know what goes into it. They know the American expectations of it, which are, must be um, high enough and strenuous enough where they would need sort of protections. Um, that how much more so would they need it when they're getting paid half the salary that they used to make and have even more expectations placed on them? So the second time around, I was like, no, they were they're in the right to expect that, um, just simply because of the nature of the work. If they were working in an office. That's another, you know, that would be like another thing. But because they're doing this kind of work that is quite dangerous, I think they were well within their rights to expect to to do that. It's interesting. But, you know, I think I think the nature of the job is one thing for sure. But, you know, you also have to understand the globalism that is happening and you know like brian and i have kind of mentioned is you know this is a company that you see some people would see as benevolent but there there's a bottom line reason why they're doing this and more Mm -hmm. than likely it's to get around tariffs it's to get around taxes and so it's just Mm -hmm. to widen their reach and widen their ability and they see a twenty thirty thousand dollar uh facility just sitting empty and they're like fuck like let's go do that and there's workers looking for manual labor jobs Mm -hmm. huh let's go there you know, and it just seems like a like a a a a very easy and calculated movement by the right. company that also is China basically reaching out into America and saying, "I'm gonna push here," and all of these people in that area are like, "Okay, cool." Um, but let's start leveraging things. And it's like, leverage what, you know, (laughs) this Chinese company has all the leverage, you know? And so it it is, it is that is to try to shift some of that power to the workers. Sure. But I guess like, I guess, I don't know. There's a part in my brain that's like, but if you haven't proven Exactly. To be a valuable workforce, then it feels weird to instantly be shifting for a union. And like, and and I'm not anti-union uh, as a rule. <laughs> Just before people start calling me a Pinkerton. Um, <laughs> but it, it's it's one of those things where there's just a part of me that's like, I I understand the need for it. Uh, companies exploit the workforces all the time. I just feel like. You know, I like me uh, once again going back to my work experience. I would not have been able to have 
gotten all of the perks that I now have from my company had I not spent a, a year proving my exactly. work. Like, they could have let me go very easily if they felt like I wasn't valuable enough to, to make all those concessions to keep me. But, like, I'm not about to walk in, fuck up for three months, and then start making demands. And um, I don't know if that makes me a good capitalist, a, a very bad capitalist, you know, but in, like, an, an evil sense, or, like, what? It's just... um. Well, it, it's very strange the, to me. It, I think you just want to make America great again, Brian. Oh, oh, <laughs> I think I think one thing that's that's interesting that this documentary kind of gets at is was this ever going to be a successful venture? Period. Whether mm. Americans are lazy or not, whether you know these people specifically should have gotten it together and been able to, you know, uh, uh, figure this shit out and just become super fucking efficient. And, you know, it's, it's funny because they go over there and they see how fast and efficient they move. And it's like, okay, a, they've been there for a lot longer, more than likely they've been doing that specific job probably for a while. So yeah, they should look efficient and smooth because they know what the fuck they're doing, but also they have a lot more cultural, just like diligence in being good at their fucking jobs to the point where it's like, you can't implement that over in America. And also, on top of that, have this cultural clash where like at one point they mention, okay, there's this thing going on that happened. It was wrong. They're going to sit here and talk in different languages for 10 minutes, disappear for five minutes, and then come back and tell us something. And it's like, that's not very efficient. That's like, we're basically at a standstill for 30 minutes while y'all figure this out. And mainly it's because it's a cultural barrier but also a language barrier and you know at one point i think i'm not sure if he's from a different country but he definitely seems to be he's over in the chinese factory and he's talking with some guy and he's like you know our productivity would go up in america or at least in this factory if we could duct tape their mouths shut (laughs) if they just wouldn't talk to each other and wouldn't like have a good time while they're working and you're just like and then they show these chinese workers and they're just silent and you're just like yeah about that scene and i'd love to get uh other people's opinions on this as well is i was watching that and the guy is making a joke that like in america probably would have killed like you know he's like sure you know the best way to increase our efficiency would be duct tape over the mouth and he's like has to explain to the guy he's like i want my workers to shut the fuck up and do their jobs and the <laughs> the guy who works at the chinese factory is a little like seemingly taken aback by yes the i don't i, I don't want to call it violence but like the the sense of uh what's the word i'm looking for just just that idea that concept of, like this guy wants to tape yeah. his workers damn mouth shut but it's it's also interesting because it's he n- has never had to have that concern because his workers wouldn't do that in the first place. Mm-hmm. So like instilling in these people a sense of this is your duty, this is your job, do your job, do it perfectly every time has allowed him to believe that he is kind and like benevolent towards them and this guy in America is like 
we got so much freedom that these people could just shoot their goddamn mouths off all the time and not make a piece of glass that's worth a damn. Mm-hmm. I um, you know, Josh is someone who's seen it multiple times. Like, has that did that scene shift at all in your meaning or, or anything like that? No, because I I feel like the particulars of like how they get the work done, um, or not get it done is just it's a symptom of the larger culture clash mm-hmm. yeah and, and, and that's why i was saying like i don't think this ever would have worked period you know i i just don't know if any of these workers would have been able to make this situation work without the incoming automation that kind of ultimately seems to be taking over right i mean um steve bogner makes a great point in my documentary um, he says if China invests hundreds of million dollars in Zambia or in the ports of Greece, that gives them a measure of control over the resources in that country and it expands their reach. So like in a sense, they want to have this like work done cheaply in America, but in another sense, it gives them a, a way to be able to control, you know, like. You know, Ohio is, if you think about the different layers, Ohio is the middle of the country. It's where every political season starts. Mm-hmm. Um, they've got just gone through a decade of hell, um, or at least the specific area. Like, and when they, with them being able to control the flow of money in and out of the community, which is, I'm sure, to some degree or another, suffering from the opioid crisis that every other suffering town is facing, um, financially suffering town is facing, like, it gives them a, point of leverage um, that they may not have if they're simply efficiently making glass in their country and shipping it here. It gives them a whole different uh, – it's like a whole different ball game. Actually, I don't know if I'm answering what you were talking about. I think I just got off on a tangent. But yeah, good <laughs> <laughs> No, you, you, definitely met, you definitely hit on it at, from the outside or from the outset, was, which was basically just the culture clash and how that just kind of seems to be such a, a struggle to get – beyond that you know they just don't understand why it's not working over here and it almost seems frustrating to even the chinese workers who are implementing these systems and like bringing over brand new kilns and all of this new technology and still like at one point you see this guy like bring over a piece of glass and it just fucking shatters into a million pieces and he's just looking at it like what the fuck just happened? You know, it's just like, I don't understand why this is fucking up, you know, and they can't figure it out. And so, yeah, ultimately, where is a lot of this shit leading? It's to automation because all I have to do with automation is see the the cause. Okay, fix it. Okay, here's here's this input. Okay, boom, done. And how are the next 20? They're perfect. Cool. All right. Move on. You know, it's just like it's it's so efficient because once you tell that that thing to do it X way, unless it just gets out of rhythm or out of sync, it's just going to continue to do it that way over and over and over until it just breaks down and then you just replace it. And that's scary to a lot of people because they're like, but I can't do like I can't work like that. And it's like, yeah, right. I know. <laughs> and that's that's actually an interesting thing that I I'm I'm curious 
um, this this kind of lays into my whole thing about how the movie says a lot of interesting things, and I don't know how much they all sync up because it brings up automation like at the very end, and I don't know how the the people in the factory or the filmmakers or anyone really feels about the, how that's gonna fuck with the labor movement because it's like are are you going to be able to as a union say you're not allowed to mechanize even if it's possible because these people need these jobs and you can't lay them off or well that's that's happened in in europe in the uk with i think it's land rover if i'm not mistaken uh basically they as a country so some, somehow in in that auto workers union that they have, they basically were like, look, we need a certain percentage of this job to be done by hand, which also means that it inflates our price per product. But that allows us to, as workers, work, right? So we as Americans are always like cutting uh, price. We're trying to become more efficient, become cheaper, so more people can afford these things. And you know, it, it goes back to Henry Ford uh, with his automation practices and things like that. Way the fuck back when, when he was basically like, "I want to make an automobile cheap enough to where everybody can afford it." And that was revolutionary at the idea or at the time because it was like, wait, we're making a cutting edge piece of technology and you're saying you want to make it so fast and efficient and cheap that everybody can now afford that? And yeah, like that's that's one of those things where, you know, yeah, as a labor party, as a labor union – uh, you would definitely have to fight against mechanization to a certain extent. Otherwise, you will just fucking be taken over by by drones. <laughs> two um, two interesting things that I heard. This is kind of this is in the uh, same um, sphere of the movie, but not about the movie per se. Um, uh, so two things I heard from um, Bill De Blasio of all people, who's like running for mayor or president. I think he has like zero zero percent in the polls or something. <laughs> but but um, um, trending he, upward. I can yeah, only Bill. go upward. Right, can only go up. Um, <laughs> he um he has two really interesting ideas related to automation and protecting workers. Um, I, I'm just gonna summarize it. Um. And I'm not like here like promoting Blasio. I just thought they were interesting ideas. Um, he's on one hand, he thinks, or his his idea is to have companies who eliminate jobs to replace them with like robots or technology, what have you, is that they would have to before they do that, they have to find like new pipelines of like either similar or or adjacent work for this for their their um their staffs and all that they've laid off to help like find and new jobs for them and retrain them in whatever field they're going into if it's not a similar one so basically basically saying like look you're gonna have to pay you're gonna have to pay for the for like people to have other jobs if they can't have your job and his other thing which is probably a more likely idea because i think it originated with bill gates was a the uh, a robot tax where basically 
when you have employees, you know, what is it like probably like 33%, 30% of our, of our paychecks go to various taxes, right? So what he's saying is for every, I don't know how you delineate like one robot from another because I'm sure they're all in the same system, but for however many X robots you have doing work, you pay a certain amount of tax for that. So then like, yes, you might be getting like, you know, more money, you know, more efficiency because of automation, but you're still contributing to the, the greater good. You know, for and, and that uh, makes what, sense. No, not that we're yeah. going to solve labor problems on this podcast, <laughs> but I would say that the robot tax to me sounds like a better idea than the um mm-hmm. the training. Yeah, because the the training thing just seems like companies are going to go. Well, then I guess we're going to keep our uh, our our employers or employees. Then um, we'll just not do that. <laughs> yeah, which, which or has, or still, as you said, you know. Uh, we are able to afford a lot of the luxuries in our life because we have found efficiencies to make them cheaper. Mm-hmm. And so it seems... Which is now what we're paying for, yeah. right? That's that's why GM... Yeah, that's why GM shut down a factory in America because more than likely they moved that out of the country. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know? Milton Hershey is a, a man <laughs> who I've, I've read a book about and I find to be an interesting... Did you read The Chocolate Wars... I think you I read have- the other one. Ah, oh, the chocolate work is good. <laughs> but he's <laughs> just hearing Michael laughing in the background. Um, so he's an interesting figure. He came up with like his whole method for making chocolate. Mm-hmm. And um, he's like, I need people to run this factory, obviously. And he did everything that he could to make their lives happy and good and nice like he built hershey park for the families he had his uh famous orphanage that Mm -hmm. he helped to set up and um he he had a company town that he designed with the hope that it would be the kind of like utopian place where it's like you know my workers don't have to worry about anything because everything they need is here and i will provide for them in a way that like no other company has ever done before and when they wanted to unionize and they like, you know, there was some violence uh, on the union side, like to try to make sure that it happened. He was so heartbroken that he basically like withdrew from public life. Like he felt he, he, he let them unionize. He, he, he gave into their demands, but he felt like personally betrayed. Sure. And, like harmed because everything that he had done in his eyes had been to give these people the best possible life. And I feel I feel like when I look at the, the, the Chinese sections of this film that I see kind of the world that Milton Hershey wanted. And it's just interesting to me how like the I guess like the, the things that we want and the things that we actually get and the things that we claim to want and the things that, that we then actually fight for are so different. It's um it's always struck me as strange that like you could have a guy who specifically and purposely wanted to make a life so good that his people wouldn't want to unionize and that they they then, you know, did it anyway and basically like broke this poor man's soul. Um I don't know, it's it's interesting. It's it's weird and to see the way that China, you know, as as shown in this movie has kind of moved towards a an amalgamation 
of Union and also Milton Hershey's kind of company plan is so weird. It's so weird to me that the two are deemed to be so antithetical, but that if one of them succeeds, it basically necessarily must breed the other. And um, mm-hmm. it's it's interesting to me also to think about the fact that, like, you know, again, China is is a communist country in the way that they, they operate and, and run everything that has this, like, infusion of capitalist spirit. And... They're so anti-union in America because, again, and, you know, I'm, I'm sort of repeating myself just as, like, a, a method of, like, bringing my own thoughts to a kind of conclusion. They view the union as the appendage of, like, individuality and being able to assert more of yourself and not give over more to the company and, like, to the state to be able to... To, to do things better they they view it as like another way that we're going to try to like get out of working harder yeah and and josh mentioned it that like the unions over there sponsor like the sports organizations and like events and things like that company events and and that's how they kind of give that individualism back to their workers in a sense you know um whether you want to say that's false or or real you know is kind of up to you but they're certainly doing that um and yeah, I, I find that a lot of that kind of interesting that they're giving them a semblance of of a voice um well you know just giving them giving them that that outlet period um whether it's it's actually functionally true or not i i can't tell you um i can't say but it's it's definitely interesting michael snydell you've been quiet for a while <laughs> I, I don't know i uh I, I guess i don't have as deep thoughts about it and i don't have the the well of knowledge that uh, you guys all have about unions, so I'm just enjoying listening to the conversation. How are we doing? You know, you think we're I, good? You know, it's <laughs> long but good. It's only an hour and a half right now. This is a short episode, baby. <laughs> uh, Michael, have you ever been in like a work situation where, like, any kind of like, you know, what's your what's your history with management? What's your history with cults? My history with management is uh, I, I, I haven't dealt with any I, – I don't know. I haven't really dealt with bosses that are difficult. I, I do a lot of freelancing, especially these days for corporate freelancers, and it's very hands-off. It's just me doing a lot of the writing. Mm-hmm. So it's – you know. I don't really have a lot of direct contact with with bosses and things like that. I've I've had jobs I've been at where I was at a publication that went down, and um, you know, I what what do you think of the ringer unionizing? <laughs> I think it's good. I, I think most of these publications unionizing is uh, is good to an extent. I hope it doesn't lead to bad things yeah i'm i'm very intelligent about this obviously i haven't read much about the ringer unionization or vox unionization or any of those i just uh i'd love to have less cynicism about 
journalism or people doing this in some type of full capacity. Um, yeah, I don't know. Those are my thoughts about it. I, I mean, I, I definitely, I, I'd say the closest I came to it is just seeing how must how much a bureaucracy was in a nonprofit. Um, that was definitely an experience that was, it didn't have to do with the unions, but that was definitely something where I, you, you see the lack of efficiency and I, I, I don't know, like for, for example, I was at a food pantry for a while and if things, if any boxes were not on pallets, uh, it was a $10,000 fine for oh. each time. Um, so if, you know, if, if a random health inspector came that day, it's not a health inspector. Uh, but yeah, if someone came to check on that, that would be major fines. So I, I guess that's my experience is just that, uh, a number of work experiences have made me more cynical about, this coll- working as a collective for the greater good idea. Um, I am. Um, yeah, yeah I, I have to agree with that. So I, I'm sure that I mentioned before on this podcast that uh, I am helping to start a distillery. Mm-hmm. Sure. And it has been one of the most frustrating. Welcome to alcohol laws in America. <laughs> Here's the funny thing, Bill. And I won't, I, I have like a whole 40, 40 minutes that I could do on this, but I will clearly keep it down a bit. Keep it done to five. <laughs> it has been not so much the 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 alcohol. Like the the ATF gave us our permits pretty fucking quickly, like mm-hmm. shockingly quickly, to the point that we were like, "Oh shit!" If we got through the federal licensing that fast, we're gonna have to like speed up. Like we're gonna have to source our grains much sooner than we thought. <laughs> Little did we know that we would have to deal with the labeling. Um, Mm -hmm. which is its own thing because we weren't just creating a straight spirit. We were doing a special aging process that then made it a specialty spirit. So we couldn't say it was rum. We have to call it something else. And then Mm -hmm. we can have the word rum in the description. We have, it's, it's this whole stupid thing. But the worst part has been that the, the county decided that we needed a fire safe room in which to age our alcohol because they were going to treat it as a industrial chemical. Now, if you were to read the charter, nowhere does it say that's necessary. In fact, it explicitly says in every other document that it is not necessary, but the County commissioner or whomever decided that it was. Mm -hmm. And we fought and we were not allowed to not have a fire safe room. So we had to spend $30,000. Oh my God. To create a fire safe room. Now, fire safe room has very specific things that need to be done in order for it to be considered fire safe. You need like explosion proof junctions on all the power, special fixtures, special sheetrock. So we do it. We leave the wall open. And an inspector from the county comes in and says, okay, this is great. You can close up this wall. You're all good. The Mm -hmm. county then comes back and says, we'd like a third party to inspect the wall. What? And we're like, I don't understand. You had your guy come out and they're like, yeah, but we'd really like a third party to come out. Why would you hire this man? (laughs) 
if you don't think he's doing a good enough job that you could take his word for it. The other problem is he told us to close up the wall. Yes. We closed up the wall. <laughs> and the county's like, well, you're going to have to tear down that wall so we can see inside of it. And we're like, but he told us to close it. And they're like, well, I guess he shouldn't have done that. <laughs> so long story short, we have been fighting with them for months. And they finally said, <laughs> okay, we're just going to remove like five random sections of five by five sheetrock off of this wall so we can look inside. Which is still money, but at least we don't have to tear down the whole fucking wall again. But, like, it's stuff like that where I was like, I sort of envy the Chinese guy who's just like, <laughs> that fire thing? Like, can't we? Chairman <laughs> Chow just coming in and being like, I don't understand. Where I'm from, I can do whatever the fuck I want. Like the garage yeah. door. Yeah. And um, <laughs> yeah. it's just, it's uh, it's an, it's insanity. I I legitimately... And I've been saying this for almost two years now. I don't know how anyone opens a business in America because <laughs> there's there's a lot of rules and regulations, yeah. and there's a lot of people that don't know what the fuck they're talking about that have their hands in these rules and regulations, and it's just making it a nightmare for people that just want to get on and and do a good job. Right. And it's just like, wait, who the fuck? Like, do you know anything about? alcohol production at all right. and they're so like that's, no that kind why of don't you teach me? Like, <laughs> i don't think you understand like we we pull the alcohol out at like 90 proof but when it gets stored it's gets stored at 45 proof at most like that's not flammable yeah and they're like well we need a fire safe room it's like but all the all the statutes say well we'd really like a fire safe room it's like they mm -hmm. just saw the concept of distilling alcohol and became so terrified <laughs> <laughs> And um, yeah, I uh, it's um, I had a grander point to tie into this, and it might have just been I don't know how anyone does anything in America, but I mean, sure. I I just actually this is what it was. I saw a lot of my life reflected in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> for for a, for a tale about a communist country's you know booming capitalist entrepreneur buying a a factory that was closed in the 2008 bubble. And just wanting to move a fire alarm and, and being told no, he could not, and being like, why not? Right. So, like, <laughs> Make it fucking happen. About geopolitical forces so immense that like it's almost hard to comprehend, but almost every scene I felt a very personal connection to it. And that's why this movie's so good, because how often does that happen in this kind of documentary? Right, and that's that's the weirdest part, and that's another part of it that like it, it makes me feel weird that like I wasn't more in tune with the construction of it. Like I don't know if it needs like if there needed to be more editing or like maybe some some more. I don't know. Heaven knows, not more cinematographers. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know, I don't know if y'all saw that, but there were like seven, and I was like, <laughs> wait, what the fuck is going on here? <laughs> just for the opening <laughs> but um yeah i don't know like it's it's so it's weird to me that like i watched this documentary i'm like this is super interesting it's very germane to my life it, it's touching on a lot of things that i've been super concerned about from you know to, uh, laws and regulations that make it very hard to start a business to you know the communism and labor unions and blah 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 but at the same time like it, there were moments when I like sort of struggled to get through it. I was like, I don't know, man, this is just kind of boring to me, despite the fact that it's so interesting. Yeah. <laughs> and I would probably need to watch it again to really tell you why I felt that way. But uh, yeah, that's I guess that's like that's that's my wrap up. That's how I'm going to end it. This is so interesting. So goddamn interesting. So germane to my life. I was sometimes quite, quite bored. <laughs> <laughs> 
I uh, uh-huh. <laughs> I think um, I think an important distinction should be made um, that you know there's one on one hand you know this kind of like big um, basically government overreach of bureaucracy and people who don't know what they're doing being in roles telling you what to do you know the expert in your field you know what have you. Um, but then, you know, when we're talking about like people who are working dangerous jobs and they're getting paid like little money for it, mm-hmm. that's where I come to appreciate unions and sure, that yeah, kind absolutely. of, that kind of overreach. But like, it's sort of like when there's a bureaucratic, uh, like Leviathan that's sort of like in charge of everything, like, like what you're talking about, that's when it's a problem. But I think sometimes like, and I'm not saying this is what's happened in this conversation, but sometimes when we talk about like, unions and whatnot it does get all like lumped in with like um bureaucracy in general and then specifically like you know for me there's a you know like we've talked about you know having a a union in your office doesn't make sense because it's performance based but then like you know every job isn't to a degree because you can get fired for your bad performance but then in a job where you're you know you're working you're manually physically working as a team member and you're also like risking, you know, in some sense life and some sense limb to do the job. You know, there needs to be protections that like uh, Chairman Cal would not want in place. Absolutely, so yeah. there's these like distinctions that are like really important, you know, depending on the, the workplace. But, you know, Absolutely. the kind of the kind of restrictions I'm talking about here for those kind of unions, I would never I think that's totally ridiculous that, you know, you trying to start a distillery have to put all this money forward, you know just to have this like fireproof room or whatever it was called. And Josh, you have no idea. It's it's (laughs) like we had to, we had to lease the space and buy all the equipment before we could even apply to have the ability to run it. Yes. Oh my gosh. An outlay of like, I don't know, $70,000 before we could even apply to ask permission to make anything. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's, see that's, that's a nightmare. A lot of a lot of that stuff happens is is you basically have to have an operating company before you can go operational, which means you have to basically be in the negative from the outset to then get the licensing to then start to maybe hopefully churn a profit 2 years down the road and it's like whoa. Josh, whoa why would said, anyone you know, it's, start It's the a difference company? between, you know, a, a labyrinthine bureaucracy and like a union which just like makes sure that everything's safe and like good for the workers and i think you know in that way this this movie this movie should disabuse any human being who believes that they have the answer that they actually have the answer well i i think i think i think one of the most and and this will be kind of my final point i think the most interesting person that i feel the film doesn't spend enough time with is the fu yao the, the 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 uh, African American guy, uh, the Fu Yao worker who is responsible for the safety and and health of the oh, workers yeah. in the American factory, and he is a Fu Yao employee. And I was like, hold on, that conversation cannot be fucking easy to go back and say, hey, this area is four hundred degrees. They can't sit here for. 30 minutes every hour mm-hmm. working in this room like they need to then move to a safer space 
cool down and then come back. And I can just see the Chinese people just being like, fuck that. No. And it's like, but this guy's a Fu Yao employee more than likely responsible for implementing OSHA regulations and things like that, where it's just like his head is basically on a chopping block every time he opens his mouth, but he's an employee of the company responsible for trying to get the OSHA regulations under control. And so it's just, I I can't imagine what kind of nightmare scenario he's under where it's just like, he's, he's hired by the company to do the work and every time he says hey we need to do this work they're like i hate you, <laughs> you <know? laughs> it's just like that's gonna that's gonna slow us down that's gonna make us spend x amount of dollars like why do why are you still an employee here <laughs> you know it's just like you you are nothing but a thorn in my side and i hired you <laughs> and i cannot fire you because then i'll have osha regulating and i think at one point they mention uh i think it's 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 the chairman and it's uh like maybe his vice president or something like that they're talking about how osha started to kind of hone in on them and they were like why and i think it was the chairman that said the tallest wind catches the wind or tallest tree catches the wind and it was basically like we're the big fish in this pond and of course, OSHA is going to hone in and regulate us mm-hmm. because we're we're the big fish. So you know they're going to make sure that hey those those workers that work in your facility are treated well and treated okay, um, even outside does anyone, of the union. Does anyone speaking of the the proverb kind of things that they throw out? Does anyone know what a mountain can't hold two tigers means? <laughs> like, tigers so territorial that Leo literally is not allowed to beat you on a mountain. That's what I would assume it means. I just, I, you know, maybe it's just my brain, and I'm just like, but a mountain's so big. <laughs> I'm I'm from Texas, so I don't I don't have much experience with mountains. No, that's true. You don't have a lot of mountains or or tigers, really. But yeah, more mountains than anything. What about people feeling like uh, they need to control things? <laughs> oh, definitely. I know all about that. <laughs> yeah, he said that, and I was like, is that like part of me was like, does that mean that like two tigers could totally take down a mountain? Like, or does that mean that like two tigers cannot coexist on a mountain? And for for some reason, it really broke my brain for a little bit because I was like, "Mountains pretty big." I feel like uh, one tiger could be on one side and one tiger could be on the other, and they'd be all right. <laughs> you just never know. I don't know. Uh, so, any final thoughts on this film, Michael Snydell? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes. What's up? <laughs> Do you have any final thoughts before we sign off? Um. No, I, I think we we had a, a wide ranging, sprawling conversation here, and I just I, I think this this uh, I, I guess I'm just continually interested in in the ways that uh, this feels so dichotomous. Like you know, early on in the film, we we already talked about the PowerPoint that they watch. And they say they say something which I hadn't thought about before, and I can't help but think about it a lot. Is that Americans are not only direct, but they dislike abstraction and theory. Mm-hmm. And it was it, it was something that oddly I was thinking about a lot during the film because it, it, from the moment you know that they're trying to do you know 
like like that in the same way that the severe casual uh, contrast comes in. Like I think that says so much about the different parts of the, of the world. Like this idea that they do like rely on those aphorisms or, or metaphors, whatever you want to call the tiger being a two tigers being on the same mountain. Like I, I think that those things are, are so foundational in other cultures. And I just find that um, so fascinating. And, and it, and it honestly, like the, the thing I came away from is like, I just want to learn more about different cultures. And, yeah. you know, that's, that's always, that's always a great thing to come away from something. And um, like you have learned more. Yes. Which is another mark in this movie's favor that I, again, for some reason, just still have this bone deep feeling that like, <laughs> I'm sort of bored at times. <laughs> this has got like, this is the most positive I've ever been on a movie. That like I at some level I'm like I don't know if it works. <laughs> I think you just feel deeply ashamed, and it's your your um, Irish Catholic coming out. <laughs> um, Josh, any final thoughts on your end? Um, I can totally see how this is like boring because because it's like it's not overtly political. And it's not overtly entertainment and it's not overtly anything. It's like this big swath of like two or three years of like what's going on, you know, in this like one part of the country with this one plant. Um, but man, like I feel like, you know, I, I really hate the idea of like film and art being used as like a, political tool or what have you, you know, I think cudgel, right. Cudgel, right. But if there was, if there was something that people, you know, happen to Netflix and chill, you know, and watch, right. <laughs> Be really nice. If people got like a, like watch this because it touches on so many things about like the lack of jobs in small town America and then what's happening to them. And then how other entrepreneurs from outside our country are, you know, reinvesting in these places, you know, they're, cause they're going to get a bigger benefit than anyone else, but it's still like, you know, there, there's just going to be some for the community. But anyway, I just feel like, um, this is a movie of like very much of its time. And I mean, and like specifically, you know, if we want to get like, you know, all Hollywood about it. You know, this is like the Obama's first movie. It's like a Netflix thing. Now it was from Sundance. Like this is a movie, whether, whether it's like super great or not, like it's in, in my view, it's entirely likely we're going to be hearing about this movie through like the award season. Right. And I know that, I know that's like kind of annoying to talk about, especially this really in the year, but like the, uh, I think Julia, Julia Riker has been nominated for like, three academy awards or something like she's like she's up there like i I was reading about her before the that we recorded you know how they always say like um um agnes varda is you know the grandmother of the french new wave right sure a- apparently julia reichert's tagline is she's the godmother godmother of american independent film so like i think uh there's gonna be so many like stories and stuff you know, that emanate from this movie that's we're going to be hearing about, you know, from PR people and from, you know, Netflix PR is going to pump this thing come award season. And, but it's also like, I think the individual stories are probably more interesting than the whole. 
Like there could be a whole movie about like Chairman Cow, right? Mm. Or, or just from his perspective. Or there could be a whole movie of just like um, of Wong and then the dude, the American that like they pair, like that they become friends with. But there's so many pieces here that I feel like uh, are to use the the evil R word relevant to what's going on. <laughs> in in people's lives in america in 2019 that like this is a pretty good way to see how they're all integrated in some sense or another and how they're all like you know all these different moving pieces are not just like isolated and uh so anyway i think it's a great documentary i guess that's that's it um i just need to go back to one of the first things that you said when you started talking what kind of weird sex is someone going to have if they're Netflixing and chilling with this movie? <laughs> <laughs> and on that yeah. note, <laughs> draw to a close here. Talk like really, really like really liberal sex, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, proletariat will rise. Um, so yeah. And Let's uh, let's move on. Um, to... Wait, is missionary the most conservative sex then? <laughs> I think. Well, oh, here's the boy. thing. You know, I hear liberal sex, and I think like distributed liberally. So like, just a lot of, <laughs> or with multiple people. Yeah. Right, yeah. So maybe like it's like this is the the movie you show before your pansexual orgy. <laughs> yeah. What a great way to set the mood with a two-hour documentary about like the decline of a small town America. Uh, uh, it gets me going. So many jokes. Um, if you're a eugenicist who wants to see the crushing of middle America, this might be just the movie for you. <laughs> and if you're a eugenicist who wants to see the crushing of Africa, a cold case Hammerschild might be the movie for you. <laughs> Oh man, there is just a movie out for everyone right now, isn't there? Um, well, for every, for every Genesis, anyway. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh boy. Uh, so speaking of movies, if you like this podcast, you can find us on Twitter at Film Stage Show, Facebook the Film Stage Show. Don't forget to go to patreon.com slash the Film Stage Show to give us your money. Don't forget also. We are brought to you by Mubi. Uh, they've got that great movie, Startup, which um, was directed by David McKenzie, who did Hell or High Water, which was a fantastic film. Uh, Michael Snydell had many great things to say about Startup. It also stars Ben Mendelsohn, who is great, and uh, Jack O'Connell, who is also great. Yeah. 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 I think so. I like him. Um, 72. Uh Back when I saw him in Skins, that's where I first saw him. Because I got to bring up Skins. Four season, oh, maybe. I only got through like the second one. <laughs> anyway. So yeah, uh, start up on Movie Now. Get your free thirty day subscription by going to mubi.com/slash/filmstage. Next week, Michael Snydell. What are we talking about? Are we talking about Hustlers? Are we talking about The Goldfinch? Oh, it's Hustlers next week. I would love to talk about Hustlers. I, I really like that director because uh, The Goldfinch uh, reviews may have came out while we were recording. And okay. yeah, uh, one of my colleagues said it is the longest movie you'll see this year. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Um, <laughs> that does not sound like a good thing. No, it does not. <laughs> 
<laughs> so yeah, we'll have to we'll have to get back to the good people on this one. Yeah, um, yeah, because I remember we talked about possibly doing the Goldfinch. Because I said, "Oh God, it's a movie based on an acclaimed novel. We're gonna have to watch that, aren't we?" But um, yeah, uh, it is Crowley though. Who I, I liked, I liked Brooklyn I for Brooklyn. as modest as it was. Yeah. yeah. Um. Anyway, we'll talk. Brooklyn's about it. fantastic. I'm I'm more thinking Hustlers just because um, I see here that uh she has directed episodes of New Girl. And she's also did uh the Meddler, which is pretty good, and uh. Uh, finding love at the end of the world, which was interesting. Seeking a friend, yeah. I um, I just decided that I should check out which episodes she directed of New Girl. All-time classic Quick Hardening Cock is one of them. Oh, yes. As Season- well as Basketball. Yeah. So, yeah, I, uh, I may need to, we may need to do this just based off of my love of those particular New Girl episodes. I've, I've heard great things about it. Y- you know, who knows how hyperbolic things are. Oh, also, fest- she directed Background Check, which is the one where Jess thinks she has a bunch of meth. Yes. Are we all New Girl fans here? I've never seen it. Oh. That's why I'm not on the podcast next week. I was about to say, never having you back. <laughs> anyway. Uh, I joke. Josh, we'd love to have you back. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. And um, that's it for today. So let's tell the fine people at home where we can be found on the internet between now and the next time they hear from us. Josh, let us start with you. Um, on Twitter, I'm at Josh Insinius. That's E-N-C-I-N-I-A-S. Bill Graham. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at CableBFG, and you can find me on the Slack channel as well. All right, Michael Snydell. You can find me on Twitter at, at Snydell. Uh, I write things occasionally. Lately, I've been writing for The Spool. Uh, I was I said uh, I'd have a review of Manos last week. It's actually this week it's coming out. Uh, I'll have some thoughts on that. But the big headline for that is that has a new score from who did Under the Skin and Jackie, guys? Oh, that's uh, Michael Levy, Levi? Yes. Yes. Michael Levy does the score, did the score for Manos. I'm not nice. having a great time with last names today. Yeah. Right. Anyway, I can be found on my uh, personal site, Twitter, and literally everything else by going to Brian J. Rowan. And um, I've written stuff for the film stage. Those can all be found at filmstage.com along with every episode of this podcast. Next week, we'll be talking about either Hustlers or The Goldfinch, depending upon, I don't know, where, where we feel like our brains are at. So uh, I'm going to put my thumb on the scale for Hustlers in all honesty. So, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us, and tune in next week.